Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to another episode of Broadway Nation the podcast that tells the remarkable story of how immigrants, Jews, queers, African-Americans, and other outcasts invented the Broadway musical and how they changed America in the process. I'm David Armstrong, and I call this episode 100 Years of Shuffle Along, Part 4. This episode is made possible in part by our Broadway Nation Backstage Pass Club producer-level member, Tracy Wellens. Thank you, Tracy, for your generous support of Broadway Nation. And I invite all of you to become members of our new Backstage Pass Club, and I'll have more information on exactly how to do that later in the episode. Today, I continue my centennial celebration of the groundbreaking musical Shuffle Along with the second half of my conversation with Richard Carlin and Ken Bloom, who are the co-authors of UB Blake, Rags, Rhythm, and Race, the very first full biography of Shuffle Along's legendary composer. As we ended the last episode, Miller and Lyles and Cicel and Blake, the two black vaudeville teams that came together to create Shuffle Along, were finally about to open their musical on Broadway following a very challenging pre-Broadway out-of-town tryout. However, the only New York theater they could get was really just a concert hall with a very shallow stage located on 63rd Street at the extreme northern edge of the theater district, over a mile from 42nd Street and the small stage allowed for only minimal scenery and the only costumes they could afford were sweat-stained hand-me-downs from previous Broadway shows. And as the first black musical to come to Broadway in more than a decade, Shuffle Along had no visibility or profile or expectation from anyone that it would run more than a week. However, even with all of that stacked against it, Shuffle Along became an immediate hit, a true overnight sensation. Yeah, to give some notion of success, the average show at that time, how many performances? I'd say if it made 200, it was a smash hit. Shuffle Along was the 10th longest running show of the 1920s, the entire decade. Yeah, it ran over 500 performances. Which was outrageous. 63rd Street had to be made one way for traffic because there were so many cabs and cars going to see the show. And the other sign of its great success in the theatrical world was that instead of having a matinee, they they switched them to midnight shows because there was such high demand among other actors and 
theatrical people who were in other shows who wanted to be able to see the show. Plus, again, that special allure of it being late at night, you'd go see a black right. show. So it became a societal thing. Society embraced them the way they embraced James Reese Europe. Right. They were sitting with black people in the audience, white people and black people. Can you imagine? That was shocking. This is really early in the 20s. We haven't gotten to the flappers and the jazz age yet. This is kicking that off. Right. This was the precursor to all that. Gershwin hadn't really hit his stride yet. So jazz wasn't really a part of Broadway scores at that point. Just a very little bit. This was really an outlier in the same way that Hamilton was an outlier. No one had expectations of Hamilton being a big hit. And the same thing happened with Shuffle Along if you want to make a comparison to now. So it took the city by storm because it marked the roaring 20s. After World War One and sort of the end of the Victorian stayed era, things were ready to break. And the 20s were when the culture broke and Shuffle Long was right there at the beginning. Don't forget that the very first blues record did not come out until 1921. It really was the tail end of the ragtime era and jazz as we know it today really didn't exist. As Ken was saying, the impact not only of the music, but the dance, the variety of characters that were portrayed, everything about it was new and exciting. And that really made the show a touchstone for so many people. Langston News talks about going to see the show multiple times, as does the white critic Haywood Brune. Everybody was not only seeing this once, they were going multiple times to experience experience it and to absorb this incredibly revolutionary show. And this was really the premiere of Blacks on Broadway that weren't trying to emulate Jerome Kern and those early shows. When you think of Cole and Johnson and their shows, they were very much in the European tradition. And the girls in Shuffle Along were really sexy. And to have sort of sexy black women strutting on the stage was, it just woke the whole white audience up to what was going on in a culture that they had nothing to do with. They had no point of reference. If you've never been banned by a brown skin, you've never been banned at all. For the vamp and this vamp is a brown skin. Believe me now, that ain't no stall. A high brown gal would make you break out of jail. A chocolate brown would make a tadpole smack a whale. And a pretty seal skin brown, I mean one long and tall, would make the silent sphinx out in the desert fall. If you've never been bammed by a brown skin, you've never been bammed at all. And this becomes not just a New York phenomenon, but a nationwide phenomenon. Right. Even while the show was still in New York, a second touring company was formed. And what's interesting about that company was they toured the Deep South. It's really interesting to see the reaction of critics and audiences. In many instances, you'd see ads in the paper that would refer to a previous appearance and that everyone came, was happy, and nothing bad happened. It was like a way to sort of assure the white audience that this was a clean family show that everyone could enjoy. Another kind of ironic thing about them touring was the company itself, because it was touring the Deep South, had to stay wherever they could find room. So another thing you see in the local papers are ads saying, Shuffle Along Company coming next week to Atlanta looking for 50 rooms. 
They couldn't stay in most hotels and really had to improvise as they toured, which the original company did also in its tryout days. It had an amazing impact because, again, as Ken was saying, this was new music, new dance, new comedy. And the fact that it was a family show and it was oriented towards mainstream society, you start to see society notices like the Mrs. Smiths took a group of the ladies club to see Shuffle Alone. It really was revolutionary. Come, dear, and don't let our faith weaken. Let's keep our love fires burning bright. Your love for me is a heavenly beacon, guiding me through love's darkest night. A dark one's path may grow. Fate won't hurry. Well, don't worry. We'll just keep our hearts aglow. Love will find a way. Those skies now. It's interesting if you read the critical reviews by obviously white critics, they were astounded sort of in a reverse racism by the sophistication of the show and the way the people held themselves. In a way, they sort of insulted the show at the same time as they praised them because they held them to past standards because they had nothing else to link it to. There was nothing like it. Whereas in the black press, they took incredible pride in the fact that the show was successful. Don't forget, the tours were segregated as well. Most black acts at that time toured what was known as the Toba circuit. Some people said stood for tough on black asses. It was a secondary circuit of houses that appealed to black audiences. And here comes this show playing mainstream white houses, even the B Company. And again, you'll see ads noting that there were special performances for the local colored in places where there could not be integration of the audiences. But the black press, like the Chicago Defender and the Pittsburgh Courier, the mainstream national black press, really took great pride in this achievement and saw it as a major opening of doors to black artists in the legitimate theater, which sadly didn't pan out. It also opened audiences to have mixed audiences. In the beginning, the blacks were in the second balcony or maybe the first balcony if there was no second balcony. But little by little, the show allowed black people to sit in the orchestra, perhaps not next to a white person. And it evolved where audiences were fully integrated. And white critics mentioned the surprise that white audiences had sitting next to a black person. No black person had ever sat next to them in a theater. 
that these people were reacting the same way that the white people were. They were just humans like anybody else. And that was a big impact that Shuffle Along had. The creators of the show and the producers become quite wealthy. Yes, definitely. In fact, one of the highly unusual elements of Shuffle Along, and it's even unusual today, is that the show was set up in such a way that its white backers, John Scholl, held 50% of the assets of whatever profit was going to be made. But the other 50% was split among the four creators who actually didn't put up any money. Plus, they were on salary, although typical of many Broadway shows today, the salaries weren't always met. But nonetheless, they were technically on salary. And also, for Cecil and Blake, the songwriters, they had major sheet music success. So the upshot was that both Cecil and Blake bought very fancy page cars. And Aubrey Lyles was said to have bought a Rolls Royce that was equipped with a wet bar, which he drove from New York to Chicago when the New York company moved on to playing Chicago and was greeted as a hero in the streets. And one of the white critics in Chicago noted somewhat ironically that the only person in the company who was wearing an inexpensive watch was the white manager. And of course, like many people who suddenly find themselves much more well-to-do than they ever were before, the money didn't last. But at least for a time being, they were kind of like the rap stars of their day in terms of they had big fans fancy cars, they moved into much nicer places to live, and were really looked on as social leaders in New York. Like a lot of great successes, especially in show business, eventually this creates some conflict. What went wrong in this incredible partnership between these two teams that had come together to make Shuffle Along? Yeah, I think Sissel was very controlling. And don't forget, just like in a rock group, think of Sting and the police, for example. The person who writes the music is making much more money because they're making the royalties from the music. And so naturally, the other people that are involved in this case, Miller and Lyles, started to resent the fact that, hey, we're getting a salary and Cecil Blake are getting a salary, but they're getting all this money from the music. And why aren't we sharing in that profit? Because the music wouldn't exist without the show. I think that both teams thought that they were responsible for the success in a certain way. And everybody's heads got swollen. Cecil and Blake were pretty much stuck together and Miller and Lyles were together as teams. And it shows that they tried to collaborate on. It just wasn't easy because everybody was an expert. Everybody knew what to do. And that caused a lot of rifts. There were a couple of things that contributed. First of all, as soon as Shuffle Along was successful, other producers started to strip away the stars. Gertrude Sanders, who was the original femme fatale lead, within a couple of weeks was hired away for much more money. And of course, Florence Mills was her replacement, but then she was hired away for much more money. And what happened was George White of George White Scandals approached Miller and Lyles and offered them a boatload of money for that time to take a new show that originally was going to be called Shuffle Along as well. And that's where the major rift occurred because they were co-owners of the original show. And here they were saying, well, we're going to go off and do this other thing and take the name with us. Plus, Cecil and Flournoy Miller, the author of the book and lead comedian, did not get along. They both felt they should be the 
top cat in the production. So all those things came together. Miller and Lyles went off to do what eventually became known as Run and Wild, which of course is the show that introduced the Charleston and really kickstarted the 20s. And Cecil and Blake went on to the ill-fated production of Chocolate Dandies. What I find fascinating about both those shows, definitely Run and Wild, is sort of a sequel to Shuffle Along because the same characters appear, which were characters that had been created by Miller and Lyles prior to Shuffle Along. But I assume from an audience standpoint, almost like a new episode of a sitcom, seeing these characters in a new situation is going to feel like the continuation of Shuffle Along. So I assume that had something to do with their rift as well. Right. Miller and Lyles, as they went on and did more and more shows, even after Lyles died, it was the same characters. They never evolved at all. They had something that worked and they were sticking to it. Those characters became the models for Amos and Andy, which became tremendously successful on the radio, ironically, since here were two white men copying this black act. But it's true that like a lot of vaudevillians, they had these established characters that basically the situations would change a little bit, but they always reacted the same way. And there were sort of set business that would always occur. Don't forget, there was no television. There were no talking films. And so these were beloved routines. It took about four or five more shows before the audience got tired of it. And Miller and Lyles, by the end of the 20s, shortly before Lyles died, were really on the wane because they, as Ken said, just stuck to the same formula. And then didn't Miller go on to write for Amos and Andy eventually? Yeah, he wrote for them on the radio and then later on television. And with Manton Moreland, he appeared in a number of films. Manton Moreland, of course, is famous for being the Charlie Chan films. But for Black audiences, there was a series of films that Miller and Moreland did together, which again, pretty much preserved their shtick. Probably the best preserved performance is an uncredited one in Stormy Weather, where Miller and Manton come out with a car on stage. It's a Model T that goes through various failures and parts are flying. And it's a clever routine and probably one of the more watchable ones nowadays. I remember that routine from that movie. So you think that's a good example of their routines, what we might have seen even in Shuffle Along. Yeah, and don't forget that Shuffle Along didn't have a fixed book. From week to week, day to day, little routines could be dropped or added as the audience reacted, which is another reason people would come multiple times, because the routines would vary. Don't go away. Broadway Nation will be back right after this short break. Hi, this is David Armstrong, and it's my great pleasure to welcome Factor as a sponsor to Broadway Nation this week. This spring, you can eat stress-free with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready-to-eat in just two minutes. You can choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including popular options like Calorie Smart, Keto, Protein Plus, or my personal choice, Vegan and Veggie. You can also discover more than 60 add-ons every week, like breakfast, on-the-go lunches, snacks, and beverages that'll help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. What are you waiting for? Get started today and get chef-prepared meals on the table in two minutes with Factors ready-to-eat meals so you can get back to doing what you love this spring. 
If you're looking for gourmet meals, try meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, truffle butter, broccolini, and asparagus. These are no-fuss, no-muss meals, and Factor meals eliminate the hassle of prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. You simply heat and savor the good stuff. And you can tailor it all to your schedule. You can customize your weekly meals with the flexibility to get as much or as little as you need. And you can pause or reschedule the deliveries to suit your lifestyle. Factor is your solution for fast, premium meals without the need for cooking. And we're celebrating Earth Day all month long at Factor, so look out for the Earth Month Eats badge on the menu for the lowest carbon footprint meals. Here's what you do. Head to factormeals.com BN50 and use code BN50 to get 50% off your first box and 20% off your next box. That's code BN50, as in Broadway Nation, BN50 at factormeals.com BN50 to get 50% off your first box and 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Do it now! Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. So it's interesting that Miller and Lyles have more success with these subsequent Broadway shows than Cicely and Blake do. What were their shows during the later parts of the 20s? Well, there was Chocolate Dandies that Richard referred to. And I think that overall, Cicely and Blake were not theater people, in a sense. So I don't know that they saw OK or Oklahoma or Lady Be Good, because they used their same formulas for decades, because it worked for them. And so while the songs changed... Their later shows were a mix of vaudeville and plot, and they weren't modern in any sense. I agree with Ken, of course, but I would add to his description that what happened was, since Miller and Lyles were going off and making another comedy, I think Sissel made the decision, first of all, he made the decision he could write a book for a show, which he had never done before, although he enlisted another comedian named Lou Payton to help him. But the second thing Sissel thought was they had proved that they were the equal of white theater, so they could do something very much in the mold of white theater. So Chocolate Dandies was a much more, I don't know if the word serious is how I would describe it, but it was aimed to be the equivalent of a white musical of the period. And the critical reaction was kind of a damned if you do, damned if you don't, where the critics mostly lined up and said, we don't need black people to do this. We have white people who can do it, which is kind of like this bizarre racist trope. But also, there were a number of other shows. There was Liza. Flournoy Miller's brother did a number of shows. It would be like if after Hamilton, there were 20 rap shows all within a couple of years. Unfortunately, there was somewhat of audience fatigue. And the other thing that happened was Runnin' Wild opened first and played, ironically, at the same theater Chocolate Dandies opened when Runnin' Wild closed. It opened in the middle of the summer. It got started late. And the first performance wasn't over until midnight. And it was very hot. So I think all those things conspired to make it not successful. And it was also much more highly produced 
wasn't it? Yes. That was kind of the standard. Again, they were trying to keep up with Running Wild. I think Running Wild had 80 people in it. They would advertise it, you know, 50 dancing girls or whatever. So they had over 100 and very elaborate production numbers. So it was very expensive to produce. I think also, frankly, that door that we talked about opening all of a sudden, there was a lot of forces that were working to slam it shut. And unfortunately for Cecil and Blake, Chocolate Dandies kind of suffered from that as well. And, you know, Yubi wrote songs for a white show, Elsie, But even so, he was criticized as a black composer and his songs were sort of in that grouping rather than equal to what the white composers were doing. Right. The critics couldn't put everybody together under one umbrella. One of the very clear threads in your book is how the white establishment wants the black artists to stay in their lane over and over again. It's sort of a double-edged sword. When they tried to expand beyond what they were doing, they were criticized for it and pushed back. But then they got yeah. stuck in this rut of basically doing the same show over and over again, which eventually runs out of style and they weren't able over the next several decades to reinvent themselves as the musical reinvented itself. You look at somebody like Irving Berlin, who how he was able to do anything he did based on where he came from and his level of education and to go through the entire what I call the Silver Age and then have his greatest successes in the Golden Age with the book musical in the Rodgers and Hammerstein era is phenomenal. Most people in show business right. would not be able to do that. And I think doubly so, it was really hard for these black artists to find the way to do that. Well, I think it's telling when the talkies came in and a number of New York composers were hired away by Hollywood. The black composers were not. And Yubi, in fact, had co-written a song called You're Lucky to Me with a guy named Jack Scholl. And it was in a review that Will Moore Morrissey put on in 1930. And Scholl, this was his first song, his first hit. And yet, ironically, Scholl was hired immediately to go to Hollywood and became a script doctor and songwriter lyricist there, where UB wasn't. Similarly, there were various attempts to get UB on the radio, and it inevitably would fall apart, either because the networks couldn't get sponsorship, or they themselves were just not comfortable with having a black band leader, unless it was a special program to celebrate blacks, which would inevitably mean it was like an evening of spirituals, or some stereotype like that. I think UB was every bit as smart, every bit as adaptable, and every bit as far-sighted as serving Berlin. He just was boxed in in ways that Berlin wasn't. You think of Fats Waller, who had greater fame than Yubi. He appeared in Stormy Weather as sort of a guest act. He wrote songs. He was a fantastic musician and he couldn't get a career either. Yeah. Right. And of course, the double whammy of this opportunity of talkies, which is not available to them, also comes right at the same time as the Depression is hitting. And Broadway retracting to a great extent in the 1930s. There's so many great shows in the 30s, but fewer shows than there were in the 20s. Again, it makes sense. The audience had shrunk. The people who could afford to go to a show had shrunk. And then the people given opportunities to write those shows is going to be diminished, which is unfortunately going to mean that the people of color are going to be pushed to the sides. And remember, vaudeville was dead in the 30s. Movies replaced vaudeville with shorts and stuff. So they couldn't even go back to their prior successes in vaudeville. They tried to do some things, but they were just, I don't know, they were like fish out of water. There was so few opportunities for them. But UB starts writing with some other partners. Andy Razzoff, particularly, very successfully in Blackbirds of 1930. And they did have hits 
songs coming from that show. But nonetheless, you know, Lou Leslie, who was a Jewish producer who did Blackbirds of 1928 with Ethel Waters and other black stars, created Blackbirds of 1930, but Lightning couldn't strike twice with that, even though he had a very good cast. But again, it was the same thing that Broadway had already seen. And it was the Depression. The right. Depression okay. hit. And Ethel Waters quipped that they played next door to a flea circus and the flea circus got a bigger audience. But the other person that you be partnered with who's really unsung in the annals of the theatrical history is Milton Reddy, who was a young black lyricist, much more politically progressive than UB or Sissel, much more attuned to what was going on in the times. But he came up in the mid-30s where the opportunities were almost non-existent. They did collaborate on a show called Swing It, and it had a very brief Broadway run. But really, a lyricist of the quality of Anandi Razaf, who deserved to have more of a legacy than sadly he had. As just a sort of victim of the times and the fact that it was so hard for black artists to break through. The WPA and all the federal programs, they had a black unit and UB was part of that, but it was strictly a black unit. And they tried their best to put on shows and all, but there was no future for any of it because it was put in its own little box. But that got them through the 30s, which was a really tough time for them. One of the heartbreaking things from your book is the way Cicel and Blake both keep redoing Shuffle Along, basically, without changing it, just trying to recapture the magic of Shuffle Along in the 30s, the 40s, and even into the 50s. The world changed, particularly after World War II. Sissel had managed to tour the show with the USO. Yubi didn't like to leave America. He just was not comfortable traveling very much. He didn't even like touring within the States. So Sissel and Miller took the show to Italy and France during World War II, and it was quite successful. It was a truncated version. And again, they updated the plot. So now the lead comedians were soldiers and whatnot, although the routines were similar, of course. And so when they came back, they felt like just as when Sissel came back after World War One with James Reese Europe, there was this big opportunity for Europe to tour with his orchestra and they were celebrated as war heroes. Well, Sissel thought the same thing would happen after World War Two, but the whole culture had shifted so much. And then that led to a series of unfortunate attempts that led to the ill-fated 1952 Broadway production where they gave up creative control and the show, I think, lasted six performances. It didn't last long. One of the saddest things to read is the producer who was trying to raise money for that show, there was a whole file of letters from white potential backers who would say, gee, you know, I'd love to help out, but my friends tell me there's no money in black shows because they can't be sold to the movies. So I'm not going to invest in this. And that really is indicative of the continuing racism and doors that were closed to them that dated right back to even their days of success. One of the amazing things about Yubi's story, however, is that he has this unlikely third act after a long period of very hard times. He has this big rediscovery. Where does that start? Where does the rediscovery of Yubi Blake begin? During the post-war period, there was a number of white enthusiasts who started to rediscover ragtime, which, you know, going back to Scott Joplin and the turn of the century, there was an art critic turned jazz writer named Rudy Blesch. 
His mistress was named Harriet Janis. Her husband ran a very famous art gallery called the Sydney Janis Gallery. And somehow or other, they had this arrangement where Rudy and Harriet lived together, even though Harriet was married to Sydney. But that's another story. In any case, Harriet really was the ragtime fan. And they wrote a seminal book called They All Played Ragtime, which first came out in the early 50s. They also formed a short-lived record label, and they made the first post-war recording of UB. They actually recorded an entire album, but they went bankrupt before it could be released. So Rudy kept pushing UB in the jazz-slash-ragtime revival world and brought him to Newport to play ragtime with Willie the Lion Smith in the late 50s. The and, Newport Jazz Festival. Right. And then there was this sort of brief period. Your listeners are probably too young to remember people <laughs> like Naki Parker, but there were these, what I consider to be kind of novelty ragtime hits like 12th Street Rag and they would always be dressed in a vest and playing a piano with thumbtacks on it. One of the more serious musicians in that crowd was Max Marath, who was also a key promoter and in the early 60s there was actually a network TV show hosted by Hokie Carmichael which ended with UB, Hokie, Max Marath and one other pianist playing a four piano rendition of Maple Leaf Rag. There was all this stuff sort of percolating. And Yubi was so open to mentoring people that he became beloved in this very small crowd. But things really broke open when John Hammond, who worked for CBS Records, arranged for this session that led to a two-record set called The 86 Years of U.B. Blake, which came out in 1969. And lo and behold, it was a big seller. He appeared on The Tonight Show. He started to tour all over the world. And suddenly, being a natural entertainer, I recommend that your listeners just go on YouTube and type in U.B. Blake. I mean, he was just a wonderful storyteller and performer. He just became a major attraction in his late 80s through his 90s until his death. Remember that Nunsuch did all these Scott Joplin records. There was a record company called Biograph that put out all these piano rolls, including some by UB. So this was a huge wave. It wasn't UB alone. It was all the ragtime musicians. It became a big thing. And then it, it really broke through with the movie The Sting, where Marvin Hamlish used Scott Joplin's The Entertainer. And one uh, of the rewards yeah. for himself. Yeah, and that led to a biopic. Biopic. <laughs> biopic. <laughs> Of Scott Joplin, which actually featured Yubi in a supporting role, although he was very annoyed because they had a white pianist overdub his part. Again, it's just like things never change. And an important part of Yubi's success was his second wife, Marion, who really got his life together financially. Yubi wasn't driven to go up against ASCAP or fight for himself. He wanted to play music, and she really got it together. And also a record guy, Carl Seltzer, who founded a record label, UB Blake Music, because of his love for UB. He wasn't going to make a lot of money from this stuff, but he was a super fan. And they put out a number of LPs that were fantastic. Both of them helped UB get his fair share of the royalties. Black people were being paid a lower percentage. Is that what it was? Right. His second wife had worked 
for W.C. Handy, who was a music publisher and, of course, composer of St. Louis Blues. And she was very savvy. UB was not. As Ken said, he just let things go. And so when I'm Just Wild About Harry was a big hit again when Harry Truman ran for president, UB was still rated at the bottom of the ASCAP scale, even though he had been admitted to ASCAP, unlike 99% of other Black composers, thanks to Shuffle Along. His wife managed to get him bumped up three times in the next couple of years so that he would actually get a bigger pay for the songs. And then, of course, Memories of You, the song that UB and Andy Razaf wrote for Lou Leslie, became a hit again in the mid-50s thanks to Benny Goodman. two songs really brought him renewed recognition and wealth that he would not have had. And that was thanks to Marion. There was a book reminiscing with Cecil and Blake, and it just all came together in every medium. He was on television, jazz festivals, and even though he could be infirm, when he sat down at the piano, he lit up and became young again. He could do anything. Amazingly, UB was not done with Broadway either. Tell the story of Rosetta Lenoir. I love the idea that at sort of the darkest time of UB's life, there's this little meeting that eventually pays off in a major way for him. Rosetta was one of UB's neighbors. And even in the 30s, he was still a leader in Harlem society. He was active in things like the Harlem Elks Club and other self-help places. And Rosetta was partially crippled and was not a happy young girl. And her father father came to UB and said, I'd like to get her music lessons, but I can't afford them. And he said, oh, don't worry about that. Just have her come over to my place and I'll give her lessons. She was very dark skinned and very self-conscious about that. And one day UB said to her, why do you hang your head down so much? And she said, well, you know, I, I'm, I have a bad leg and I'm not pretty like the other girls. You know, I don't look like a pretty white girl. And UB pointed out the window and he said, do you see all those flowers? out in the alley and she goes yes and he goes aren't they all different colors and all look different and yet they're all beautiful in their own way you know he's kind of teaching her that lesson well she became ironically an important force in black theater little rosetta lenoir would go on to an incredible 70-year career as a stage film and television actress and theater producer At her own off-Broadway theater company, Amas Repertory Theater, which she founded in 1968, she conceived, staged, and produced the original production of Bubbling Brown Sugar, the hit 1975 musical review that celebrated the Harlem Renaissance and included several songs by her childhood music teacher, U.B. Blake. The success of this show quickly inspired a string of hit black composer reviews, including the 1976 Broadway musical, U.B., which was entirely made up of songs by U.B. Blake. So 
a woman named Julianne Boyd had heard of UB and all, and she decided to do a small review off-Broadway in the village. And because of all the other things happening with UB, it caught on. She hooked up with a black producer, Ashton Springer, and they opened on Broadway. And they were a pretty big success. They had the Heinz brothers were in it and other really good performers. And it was a good show. And Ashton Springer then decided to take it on the road and ended up having a lot of lawsuits because people weren't getting paid. And Ashton Springer was a shady character, shall we say. And the word was that he wanted his shows to lose money. It was like the producers, in a sense. He wanted to lose money because he was laundering money for the black mafia. Wow. You didn't yeah. hear it here. <laughs> I said, we never said that, did we, Ken? No, we did not say it in the book. <laughs> but that was a scuttlebutt around Broadway. And he's dead now, so what can you do? Again, you know, in the 30s, Lou Leslie took advantage of people, never paid them what they were owed. In the 70s and 80s, it's the same story, and I'm sure it's the same today. I guess it's the most heartbreaking aspect of right. this is that black artists still... And white artists, but black artists especially, the producers and the the money folks feel they can treat them, you know, promise them the moon, but never deliver. But the good news for Yubi was he had a great lawyer, Elliot Hoffman, who really believed in him. And he didn't make a lot of money for Elliot Hoffman, but Elliot Hoffman was on his side. He did all of UB's contracts, and he tracked these people down, and he got money from Springer that was held back. So UB owed a lot of his later years to Elliot Hoffman that he kept getting money from these other projects. So he deserves a lot of credit. What would you say is the legacy of UB Blake? He has this incredible career. He celebrated on his 100th birthday, which is not really his 100th birthday, but he doesn't know that, or it seems like he doesn't. Talk a little bit about that. I remember there was a big celebration for his 100th birthday. Throughout his life, at least publicly, UB claimed to be born in 1883, even though he was aware. We actually found in the archives that he had written for his original birth certificate and other paperwork. He was born in 1887. Now, how you would pre-plan to take four <laughs> years off your life so you could live to be 100 because hardly so anybody fun. lies to be older than they are. <laughs> right. And I have a I mean, you can come up with theories. His first wife was older than him. And also he wanted to be able to brag that he had written this rag in 1899, which is a lot more believable if you're 17 than if you're 13. Whatever it was, he came up with this story. He believed it to the extent that that was the story. And by the time he became famous, after all, he had a record called the 86 years. He couldn't come back and say, actually, it was the 82 years. So most people who knew him said he was determined to live to be 100. And his wife died about six months before he did. And that's when he really went into decline, which is a pattern for many couples. And he did, in fact, live to be 100, except he wasn't 100. He was 96, which is still a pretty good achievement. And everybody went along with it. The odd thing is, is, of course, all these actresses say they're four or five or ten years younger than they are. He wanted to appear older than he was. And, of course, the famous joke that you be told, and this was very much in character. Somebody asked him in his mid-90s when the male sex drive went away, and Yubi said, you'd have to ask someone older than me. And in fact, by all accounts, that was true. We'll just leave it there. (laughs) (laughs) You have to read the book to find out those juicy details. Yeah, yeah. 
So what's the legacy? What do you make of his story? I think his story is that despite everything, he's one black artist who persevered really basically 80 years in show business through the ups and the downs, the demise of vaudeville. And he kept reinventing himself and going on and on and eventually becoming a big star. I mean, literally a big star in the last 10 years of his life. And I think there's something to be said about that. Here you have this tremendously talented black artist who gets a certain level of success, but could have had so much more success and had to battle the racism of the music industry and of the culture in general. But he never let it sour him. He was always optimistic and he was always pushing forward. And I think this is a really important history to reclaim, because when you look at the quote-unquote standard histories of Broadway, Shuffle Along might get, I don't know, a sentence, maybe a paragraph, and many of the other Black shows are not mentioned at all. And I think that it's really important to not only acknowledge the reasons for that, but also to reincorporate this, because these songs, these shows... This music really made 20th century popular music. And without UB and composers like him, certainly the history of Broadway would be totally different. Thank you, Richard Carlin and Ken Bloom, for sharing your expertise with us and helping us to celebrate this Shuffle Along centennial. It's been an honor to have you as my special guest on the 50th episode of Broadway Nation. To celebrate this 50th episode, I'm very pleased to announce the inauguration of the Broadway Nation Backstage Pass Club. If you love this podcast and want to delve even deeper into the world of Broadway musicals, I invite you to become a member of the Broadway Nation Backstage Pass Club. For as little as $7 a month, members will receive exclusive access to never-before-heard, unedited versions of every Season 2 interview and many from Season 1 as well. I often record at least twice as much conversation as ends up in the public episodes, and this includes additional in-depth conversations with my frequent co-host, Albert Evans. You will also have the opportunity to ask us any questions about Broadway musicals that you would like to hear answered and to propose topics and subject matter that you would like me to cover, all of which I will incorporate into a special series of Ask Me Anything About Broadway episodes. Last, but certainly not least, you will receive special on-air shout-outs and acknowledgement of your vital support for this podcast. And if you're feeling especially enthusiastic about Broadway Nation, there are patron and producer levels of support available as well. To join, just click the link included in the show notes for this episode on our website at www.broadway-nation.com. That's broadway-nation.com. And now I am thrilled for the very first time to thank our Backstage Pass Club founding members, Roger Clarice, Neil Hoyt, Daniel Cox, and Chris Mode, and producer-level founding members, Stephen Paula Reynolds, Bob Braun, Tracy Wellens, and Gary Fuller and Randy Everett. Thank you all so very much, and welcome to the club. Waking sky. At sunrise Every sunset too Seems to be bringing me Memories of you 
Broadway Nation is written and produced by me, David Armstrong. Special thanks to Pals Mox for his help in editing this episode, to KVSH 101.9, the voice of beautiful Vashon Island, Washington, and to the entire team at the Broadway Podcast Network. Memories of you How I wish I could forget Those happy yesteryears That have left a rosary of tears Your face beams in my dreams Spite of all I do Everything seems to bring Memories of you Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.